you are now entering the Podglomerate. Welcome to Plus 7 Intelligence, the show about how games impact people. This is episode one. This is where it all begins. Because this is episode one, I wanted to take a minute to explain what this show is all about. The best way that I could explain what Plus 7 Intelligence is about is to tell a story that's not about video games at all, and in fact takes place before video games were even invented. In World War II, Great Britain had a problem. Their supply lines were constantly being attacked by German submarines known as U-boats. The only way for them to avoid these attacks would be to intercept Nazi military communications so that they could know where the submarines were lying in wait and direct their ships away from them. Intercepting the radio transmissions wasn't the hard part. The Nazis used a very sophisticated method to encrypt their messages so that even if you intercepted a message, you wouldn't know what it said. They did that by using a machine called Enigma. Enigma was a very complicated mechanical and electrical device that would actually change how the letters would be scrambled with every new press of a key. So it was an extremely difficult problem to unravel. So to tackle this challenge, Great Britain assembled a team at Bletchley Park completely devoted to cracking Enigma. And of course they recruited mathematicians and experts in encryption and decryption. But they also went outside the box. They recruited chess masters and top crossword solvers. They even ran their own crossword competition in order to find the best talent. They knew that breaking a code required a strong intellect and systematic thinking. Both of those games had a reputation for requiring those traits. But what many people don't know is that these games did not always enjoy such a positive reputation. The New York Times crossword is well known and well regarded now, but an opinion piece in the New York Times itself once read that crosswords was the utterly futile finding of words. And as far as chess goes, Benjamin Franklin himself once wrote an essay about what he called the morals of chess in response to people who considered it an idle amusement. So these games did not always have the prestige that they have now and that led recruiters at Bletchley Park to see players of those games as valuable. So valuable that they added them to a team with a critical mission that was extremely difficult a team that rose to the challenge, cracked the Enigma code, and had a significant impact on the outcome of the war. So over time, people recognized the merit in these games that were considered pointless. That shift, that directly led to the potential of the games, of the gamers, to influence the world in a significant way. So what about video games? Do video games have the potential to significantly change our world? Do they already have an impact on our world that we are not seeing yet? That is what Plus 7 Intelligence is about. I'm going to interview people who are at the intersection of gaming and real life to see what we can make of it. I want to unravel the mystery of how games impact people.
Ah, but where are my manners? I haven't introduced myself. My name's Chess. Yes, my name is Chess. That's weird. I just got done with a story about Chess, and that's my name. Also, the spelling is a little bit different. That's not important. My name is Chess. I'm an engineer. I work at Kennedy Space Center by day, and I do this by night. When I'm not playing games, I'm doing this, talking about them. And I'm sure you'll get to know me better as the show goes on. Now that you know what Plus 7 Intelligence is about and what I'm about, let's get into the show. I've got three day one episodes for you. And this is going to roll right into episode one with my guest, Andrew Reinhardt. Today, we are talking about video games and archaeology. Now, the only thing you may think is in the Venn diagram intersection between video games and archaeology would be the Lara Croft or Uncharted series. But that is not what this episode is about. This is about a real-life video game archaeologist. I'll let him explain what that means and what he does, but what I found interesting was how he fused an academic study about getting out into the dirt and finding things about real humans with a virtual medium like video games. Let's start. All right, my guest today is Andrew Reinhard. He is an archaeologist, and he runs the site archaeogaming.com a website that discusses the archaeology both of and in video games. So welcome to the show, Andrew. Oh, thanks for having me, Chess. Before we get into exactly what archaeogaming is, let's start with just what got you into archaeology in the first place? Um, I was bad at math. Uh, <laughs> well, let me elaborate. Um, uh, when, when I was a kid, I, I think like all kids, I wanted to be an astronaut, and then I got glasses in third grade, so that wasn't going to work. Um, so I wanted to be an astrophysicist or a cosmologist, and coming up against advanced mathematics, it's like maybe a career in the humanities might be a good idea. So um, about that time, my dad got me into Homer, so I was reading the Iliad and the Odyssey, and I thought that was pretty cool. Um, and uh, I'm like, well... You know, these are some really great stories, and I'm really into, you know, the ancient Mediterranean world, especially uh, ancient Greece. So why not give that a try? And, and yeah, so it, uh, basically I applied, I'd applied to a bunch of schools for, for my bachelor's, and uh, the University of Evansville was just starting up an archaeology program, and they gave me the most money to go. So, um, yeah, I guess economics and bad mathematics helped, uh, you know, push me in that direction. You know, I think a lot of people would say like Indiana Jones or or they like digging in their backyard. But for me, it was basically I'm a victim of circumstance. Sometimes we end up in places we never really expected. Well, this is but, true. Uh, you know, that but, could be great. <laughs> we, we will come back to the astrophysics later, though, I guarantee. Oh, yeah. A little teaser for the listeners there. <laughs> when did you first get the idea of mixing archaeology and video games? This is kind of by accident. I remember... You know, I just happened to be a video game player and who also happened to be an archaeologist. And so I didn't really start making the connection until I started playing World of Warcraft. Um, and I started playing Vanilla um, maybe a year or two after it came out. And so I was playing Vanilla WoW. And instead of being really interested in the quests and quest lines and leveling up and everything, I just wanted to go walk around. <laughs> and, and, uh, and, you know, having this game lore you know, at my fingertips and looking at architecture and looking at these ruins that had been designed for the game. But that was really cool. 
Um, and then ultimately you started getting kind of archaeological or lore quests, and then in later later expansions of WoW, um, you actually had an archaeology skill that you could use. And and so you know that really kind of piqued my interest in thinking about open worlds and virtual environments as actually something that we could study, you know, as archaeologists, you know, we can ask archaeological questions about the cultures that are in this game and, and what's really going on in there. And so, you know, over time, you know, I've kind of refined, you know, those, uh, those initial inquiries into, you know, playing WoW and playing it archaeologically to opening it up to other kinds of games to, to see, you know, what these things are, um, and, you know, that, that really just kind of blossomed into, you know, what became the blog, um, which launched back in 2013, uh, archaeogaming.com. Um, and that was about the same time that uh, it was announced that uh, an entertainment company was going to be digging real Atari cartridges out in a real desert <laughs> in New Mexico. And, and that really, you know, kind of turned you know, archaeogaming, you know, on its ear, because, you know, here we are thinking about archaeology in video games, and all of a sudden we have archaeology of video games, and that was just really cool to me. So I, I wrote to the company and said, hey, what are you doing with the archaeology of this stuff? And they're like, well, we don't know. Why don't you come out and bring a team? And so, you know, one thing led to another, and we're actually digging in the dirt, um, you know, the first video game excavation in history. Yeah, some of you listeners may be familiar with it, uh, they actually made a, a documentary about it, and I guess the the legend was that the Atari game E.T. after the movie was hyped, you know, much like the modern day hype cycle of games. That it had a huge amount of copies that were made and expected to be sold, but lo and behold, when people got the game, they found out that it really wasn't very good and almost impossible to beat. So the legend goes that basically out of shame, Atari dumped massive amounts of these cartridges somewhere into the desert, burying their shame. Uh, <laughs> you know, a couple of years ago, some enterprising fans went out to try to find out if that was true and find out what the story was. So in your contributions to that, were you able to find any truth to that legend? Yeah. Um, you know, this was an interesting, interesting story just because the legend should not have been a legend. And you know, we're we're looking at the story kind of straddling both sides of the birth of the internet, or or instead of the birth of the internet, maybe its widespread use. Because the New York Times and the Alamogordo Daily News had both reported on the dumping of the Atari games back in 1983, and you know that stuff was saved to microfiche and was available if you if you like called up the newspapers or if you went to a university library, you could get that stuff. But you know, in the age of the internet, people would go into chat rooms or Usenet or whatever, and they would be able to talk to each other. And it was kind of forgotten that this thing actually happened. And the people who were there weren't on these particular channels. So a myth was born um, where there really shouldn't have been one. So this is kind of an interesting story about, you know, the use of technology and how, and how things, how myths can get started. You know, myths are always started with a grain of truth. And, uh, you know, here we are. So as far as the story went, it was clear once we actually got to the Atari level, which is just funny to say you know, from, from a gaming standpoint as well as an archaeological standpoint, you know, here we are at the Atari level, 30 feet down in the landfill, um, and the game started coming up. Um, and Atari, you know, Atari's ET was only about 10% of what we started to find. Uh, we found probably 40 separate titles, 40 different games, and multiple copies of each. 
Um, we only excavated uh, over the course of that day because we got shut down by weather. And then we had only, I guess, gotten permission from um, the Environmental Protection Service of the state of New Mexico to, to actively dig in the landfill for one or two days. So it's not a lot of time, especially when you have about 800,000 cartridges down there under the desert floor. Um, so we only got about 1,300 games out, but it was a, a pretty diverse collection. But we were able to confirm, yeah, there were games there. E.T. was part of it. Uh, part of the legend was that cement trucks had gone and poured a concrete slab over the games to protect them. And that was that was true, but not to the extent that it was a slab. It was basically like globs of concrete, and we found you know some concrete there um, covering some of the games. There was slurry on the cartridges and stuff. But, uh, you know, so so we were able to confirm, you know, a lot of the legend, but we were actually able to add some detail to it that had been kind of lost over the past 35 years. What do you think you're able to contribute from, you know, it, it sounds like they weren't really thinking about thinking of it as archaeology. What were you able to contribute with bringing uh, your perspective to it? When I first heard about you know the the proposed excavation it, it was basically going to be like a treasure hunt and, and in a lot of ways it still was you know we're going to go out here we're going to, we think we're going to find these things we're not sure if we're digging in the right place and that was actually true there was a lot of a lot of drama leading up to it that was real um and then there was a big sigh of relief when the backhoe operator you know did did hit uh, pay dirt as it were but uh, you know, from an archaeological standpoint, we were very interested in the archaeology of the recent past, or what my friend Bill Carraher calls late capitalism, where we're looking at economic history. We're looking at how people dispose of entertainment, uh, how entertainment commodities have a very short lifespan, and what happens to those when they outlive their usefulness or their saleability. Uh, we found that the excavation proved that the burial was less, was less about shame uh, as a lot of people thought, and more about being practical. Um, as it happened, uh, the warehouse that Atari used in El Paso was full, especially with all the returns that they were getting of unsold stock or returned stock, you know, of ET and also of Pac-Man. And they had to get rid of stuff, you know, from the warehouse because they had another Christmas season coming up, and they needed to start stocking the shelves with uh, new games to sell for the holidays. So the cheapest thing for them to do was to hire a bunch of trucks and send them out to the desert and come to an agreement with the city of Alamogordo to use their landfill as a resting place for these things just to make room for new stock. And that's really what it was. Um, and so you, know, you can kind of take that myth and you re remove all of the magic and it just turns out to be we ran out of space and you know, it seemed like the desert was a good place to deposit this stuff. So uh, you know, that's, that's kind of what happened. And as archaeologists... You know, we're, we're constantly dealing with nostalgia and the romance of archaeology, but when it comes down to it, people do things for very specific and practical reasons, and this was just another example of that. Yeah, and the, the name of that documentary, I just looked it up, it's called Atari Game Over. I watched it last year. I don't remember how, how much you star in it. Um, I'm, I'm part of it. It's the, the film's not, not really about the archaeology. I mean, the excavation right. kind of frames the narrative of the of the documentary, which is really a redemption story for the programmer Howard Scott Warshaw, who was Atari's wunderkind back in the 1980s. And he was the one who wrote Indiana Jones. He wrote Yars Revenge. And he uh, also wrote E.T. Um, in like five weeks, and which is not enough time to do anything well. Um, but they were under a lot of pressure to get it out. So it, the story's more about him. Um, I'm in there, you know, messing around in the dirt with my team. And, and uh, you know, you can hear me on camera and stuff. And it was just... 
it was really weird for for us as archaeologists to be on camera because that really doesn't happen. Um, but we were willing to do that just because nobody, no archaeologist gets to dig in a landfill because of all of the environmental regulations and safety concerns and everything. So if we're able to to go out there and do it in front of a, a film crew, you know, that's really going to be the oper- only opportunity we ha- will have in our lifetimes probably to get access to that kind of content and that kind of material. So so for us, you know, like, yeah, sure, we'll be in the film, you know, as long as we can keep our data and take pictures and, you know, keep our records and ultimately um, that'll lead to publication. I saw one an article about you that you said that there is no difference between cultures in either real or virtual environments. <laughs> <laughs> can you elaborate on that? Yeah, you know, um, I haven't gotten into as much trouble for saying that as I thought I would. Um, <laughs> sometimes I say stuff to be provocative, and and sometimes I just say it because I think it's true, and sometimes it's both. Um, and and in this case, uh, I I personally feel that. Archaeology of the real world asks the same questions of archaeology of virtual cultures. You know, so you know we're interested in in how people make stuff uh, wherever they happen to be. And so, you know, if 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 you're in ancient Rome, you know, what are they building? What are they using? Who's living there? Um, and and what's their history? And you can ask those same kinds of questions of Wow or you know Skyrim or you know, even even things like, you know, No Man's Sky or EVE Online or something like that, where you have an active player base that's going in. Um, they're making things themselves. They're crafting stuff. They're trading. There's an economy. Um, and, uh, you know, people can actually earn money in there, too, you know, real world as well as, as virtual currency. Um, you know, so that's really interesting. Um, when I was thinking about this also, you know, I came to the conclusion, and I haven't really done the math, but I think I'm right, in that uh, on any given day, there are more people playing World of Warcraft than have lived and died as part of the Roman Empire. Hello, this is Chess from the Future. I was curious about Andrew's claim there, so I did some digging. I don't think it's true exactly how he phrased it. However, the total population that has played WoW is larger than the population of the Roman Empire at its peak. I just thought I'd throw that in there. Um, and so if that doesn't warrant some kind of archaeological study when you've got millions of people occupying a particular space, you know, then, then I, I think you need to you know, go and do something else. But, but uh, you know, for, for an archaeologist, um, all of these video games, and especially open worlds and virtual worlds, um, really provide new opportunities for study in how modern people behave in a virtual context. And in some cases, how do these computer programs, how do these computer games basically take code and procedurally generated content to make a world. And, you know, for archaeologists, this kind of world building is really interesting and, and uh, offers a lot of, you know, a lot of uh, you know, questions for us to answer. How have your, your archaeological colleagues, how have they reacted to, to you applying, you know, their trade or your trade uh, to an unconventional subject like video game? Oh, uh-huh. <laughs> when I... When I first started bringing this this up, um, you know, a lot of my friends were like, "That's crazy talk." You know, what are you doing? But because I'd, I'd done like, you know, quote unquote, real archaeology in in, in real world uh, environments, they're like, "Well, okay, this is a hobby. He likes games. You know, okay, let him let him do his thing." And then, you know, over time, that's really kind of changed. I think, you know, we we really 
have a community of practice for video game archaeology. There are a lot of people doing it now. Um, at, you know, University of York in the UK is a hotbed for this stuff. Um, Leiden University and their value project is another hotbed there in the Netherlands. Um, and then you've got, you know, game studies programs, you know, some of whom, you know, some of which have people who are looking at games archaeologically. So it's, it's becoming a thing. And it actually started becoming a thing back in the early 2000s. Uh, one of the first articles that was published on, on video game archaeology was by Ethan Wattrell at Michigan State University. Um, and that was back in 2002. And so you have, you have those those folks, you know, coming through is kind of a first wave. Um, you've got people like Sean Graham of Play the Past and Carleton University, you know, coming along in the mid to late 2000s and really picking up the thread. And then you've got folks like me and Tara Copplestone, Megan Dennis, um, and others who are kind of third wave, um, who are looking at this stuff in a very serious and academic way. Um, and now that people are starting to get degrees in it, I think folks are starting to say, well, okay, maybe there is some, some substance to this. It's not just child's play. That's great that, you know, there's been improvement in the, I guess, status of video games in the archaeology world. Yeah, you know, we just had to keep plugging away. Like, I know you think this is crazy, but I think we're really onto something here. And then, you know, ultimately, you know, with stuff coming out in peer-reviewed journals and, and with books coming out and stuff like that, that, you know, people are finally willing to say, okay, okay, we get it, we get it, it's a thing. So, you know, you know, good for us and good for the discipline also. Yeah, and, you know, looking over your site, I can see that there really are, the overlap between games and archaeology really seems to have a lot of different dimensions to it. After looking around your site, I could definitely see a lot of different games that have that overlap where, you know, maybe it's not intentional, but they include basically like the themes and ideas behind archaeology into the game itself. Yeah, um, you know, we, we find that to be the case. A, a lot of times, you know, game developers will try to think of a reason, you know, to, to make a game what it is or, or to give a reason, you know, to a game to exist. And a lot of times it falls to archaeology or exploration as the main mechanic for that game. Oh, you're an archaeologist, so that means you have to go and do this, that, and the other. You're a treasure hunter or something like that. Or it's really cool to you know introduce lost civilizations and puzzles and treasure and loot and stuff like that too. So um, I think the trick comes in looking at games that don't have archaeology specifically in them, still as, as treating them as archaeological sites and artifacts. And, uh, you know, this gets into things like game history. Um, you might be looking at abandoned ware and, you know, different ROMs. Uh, you might be looking at, uh, you know, the creation and distribution of arcade cabinets, you know, as material culture. So you've got all, all that stuff going on, too, which is which is ancillary running in parallel, you know, with with, uh, you know, other folks who are, you know, basically like doing archaeological quests in Elder Scrolls Online or something. So we teased it earlier. Um, there's one project that I was particularly interested in, in hearing about. So can you tell me about the, the No Man's Sky Archaeological Survey? Yeah. Uh, <laughs> I, uh, we talked a little bit about hype also <laughs> at, the start of the, at the start of the episode, right? And, and when, this, when this game was announced and when, they, and when Hello Games and, and the gaming media, you know, like IGN and stuff, you know, they started putting things out about No Man's Sky, which is a procedurally generated universe that's the size of the universe. 
um, where everything in it is is made through code, um, and you show up and stuff is there that wasn't there before, and it's fully realized. And I'm like, you know, this sounds really freaking cool from an archaeological perspective, and it really fit in with what I was curious about, and I'm still very curious about in what I'm calling machine-created culture. Machine-created culture being algorithms that work together perhaps with other algorithms to make stuff that populates a game you know so you have things working together to construct buildings or or you know make spaceships in different shapes or um, to create a language and to create a writing system kind of on the fly and what does that look like and how does that work and how do we as players you know interact with this stuff um, and are there rhymes, reasons, and patterns that we can we can come up with and explain in an archaeological way? So, the No Man's Sky Archaeological Survey started out with I don't know about 20 people, and uh, who had a very real varied interest in this game and what it could do. So you know we had a zooarchaeologist, or we had an archaeolinguist, um, and uh, you know we had. Uh, you know, we had a bunch of folks who are more, you know, generalists, you know, as far as, as archaeology is concerned, with just an archaeological curiosity about what it is to, to play in a space like this. So so we got the band together and we started playing. Um, and uh, the game we played, you know, this is notorious now. So you can read all about it on Reddit and places like this, where it was not quite as advertised, you know, as, as people thought. But, you know, for archaeologists, that doesn't matter. You know, because we might dig a site, and that site's just got a bunch of junk in it, um, but it still offers a little bit of insight into the history of a place and the story of the world, and it still merits archaeological, you know, investigation and publication of those results. So we feel the same way about No Man's Sky, and especially after the Foundation patch came out um, a couple of months ago, uh, we're now playing, you know, version 1.13, I think. And in there, you've got a ton of other stuff to do. I mean, there are freighters that you can get. You can build your own bases on planets. Um, and, you know, some of these mysteries are becoming more clear, you know, as we continue to play uh, in, uh, in these kinds of environments. And there's just so much data. And if there's anything archaeologists like, it's data. So there's so much data to collect and so much information to, to kind of absorb and try to make sense out of. It's really an archaeologist daydream, you know, in, in playing a game like this. Now, some of the team members have left to pursue other games like Elite Dangerous, uh, which seems to do what No Man's Sky was trying to do, but does it in a little bit better or a little bit differently. Um, and so, you know, they're they're kind of applying those methods and ethics to to that game space. I'm still stuck in No Man's Sky. I can't get enough of it. Um, and maybe I'm a glutton for punishment or something, or I'm a really patient guy. <laughs> um, but uh, yeah, I play it to relax. Uh, but at the same time, I'm playing it to get more information out of it. And the more I play, the more the more I'm beginning to see patterns, uh, and uh, you know, for an archaeologist, you know, that's a really important thing to start observing and to document. One of the things that I really like, though, in playing a game like No Man's Sky is glitching. To me, as an archaeologist, glitches are artifacts that belong to the game, uh, and just like you might find an artifact in the dirt somewhere, you know, you, you find it, you photograph it, you document it, and ultimately you take it out of the earth and, and uh, you, you put it somewhere. Um, and then the site changes, it goes away. And this is the same thing that happens you know, with games like No Man's Sky, in that uh, you find a glitch, you record the glitch, you take pictures of it, you document it, you film it, and then when the next, next patch comes out, typically that glitch goes away. Um, and so it, it's behaving very much like a real-world artifact. And so 
being able to go in and find glitching behavior, documenting that, where it happens and why, um, you know, goes a long way into understanding how a game is working. And when you're dealing with something like machine-created culture, you're seeing where the code breaks down and, uh, you know, you try to draw some conclusions from that. So it's, you know, that, that's, that's, been, that's been interesting and it's been something more that I've been going after rather than saying, here are these ruins, why are they here? Um, it's more, here are these ruins, why did the computer decide to make this red or blue um, or provide these kinds of shapes based on the landscape and the race that are tied to these kinds of things. In one of the articles about about the NMSAS, when it was first being developed, maybe before the game came out, there were some references to the Prime Directive and how yeah. and how you're going to go about, you know, gathering your information. And can you talk about maybe some of the procedures that you use or a philosophy behind uh, how, how maybe you played a little bit differently than the rest of us did? Yeah, you know, so so all of a sudden we kind of drift into into like role-playing game as No Man's Sky. Um, but for us, you know, we were, we were archaeologists playing as archaeologists. And um, not a lot of teams I know have a like a, a team ethicist you know, it's like Counselor Troy or something you know, there <laughs> guiding us along. Uh, her name was uh, Dr. Catherine Flick. Uh, she's at the University of Leicester in the UK. And uh, so she she created kind of the, the main ethics statement or document for this. And this was written with uh, myself and with L. Megan Dennis at the University of York's uh, Center for Digital Heritage. And so the three of us, you know, all have real-world archaeologists experience but we also play games all the freaking time and so we're like how do we how do we dig responsibly how do we record responsibly and what happens if we find cultures in the game because we didn't know what kind of cultural interaction we were going to have with the gek or the viking or the corvax right and Mm -hmm. so so we wanted to be prepared on the chance that we would be involved in some kind of conflict or what happens when you find an artifact do we repatriate it do we leave it alone do we save it do we sell it and so we had to come up with these things in advance of starting to play because when you play a game, you have something called agency or player agency. And that basically means you can do stuff in the game as a player. And that stuff that you do has a very real effect and can alter the history or also alter the future of later gameplay. And so we didn't know how that agency was going to work in No Man's Sky. So we had to be very careful and thoughtful about how we wanted to approach talking to somebody, how we wanted to approach interacting, you know, with a monolith. Um, how did we want to, you know, work with, with antique plaques and what do we happen if we find, you know, stuff, you know, what do we do? Do we sell it or not? So, so, uh, you know, we, we did put a lot of thought into it. It turns out that, that we probably overthought it for this particular game, but the benefit is we now have a document that we can adjust for future games that we play so that uh, you know, we can follow this, you know, similar ethical guidelines, you know, based on on what's coming. I th- I think the Man's Sky is the first major step in a new direction with procedurally generated generated content in games, even though that's a very old concept. But now we're seeing it applied in, in you know a lot more AAA titles, and there are a number of indie developers, uh, Ultima Ratio Regum, for example. Um, you know that game that'll be coming out in the next year or two. Um, it's just stunning, you know, how they're using PCG. You know, for, for that, and as an archaeologist, you have to be really careful about how to interact with that stuff because it does have ramifications on your work because you're you're actively involving yourself in the world. Yeah, that, that's really fascinating. You know, if you pull someone off the street and talk about video games, their description of what video games are is going to be pretty far removed from, you know, <laughs> how, 
you know, the idea of having an ethical document to to kind of be an outline for how you study a game and in a way respect these virtual simulated cultures. That's just really fascinating to me, like the the kind of depth that we're getting into games now. And like you said, there's just going to be more games that have advanced AI and AI that's really reactive. And so introducing yourself into their environment really could be a significant event. Yeah, I mean, just by just by being there, you're making things happen in a game. You know, the game is just kind of sitting around until you activate it. And, and yeah, and then stuff happens. And, you know, whether you choose to stand or whether you choose to shoot, you know, that, that makes different things happen in the game. Now, don't get me wrong. I mean, we still like to play shooters. You know, we're still playing Overwatch. We're still, you know, we still like to, to, to loot corpses and uh, go to the auction house and everything. But if we're, if we're playing a game specifically to document it archaeologically, there are rules that we, sh- that we need to follow. On occasion, we will use one save point as, okay, we're going to have fun. <laughs> and, and then another save point, we might revert and then say, okay, we're going to do this seriously. And so, you know, the, we, we still enjoy playing. It's not like this is no fun anymore, because it totally is. But it's, it's fun in a, a, a different way. That's really interesting. So do you have any, the, any projects on the horizon now? The, uh, I, <laughs> yes. Um, I just started my PhD um, at the University of York it at a distance. So, you know, I live at, I live near Princeton, New Jersey, and I work in New York City. Um, and so I'm able to do reading and research and writing from home. And then I go to England a couple of times a year to defend my work and to meet with my department and my supervisor. And so, you know, if all things go well, I'll have a PhD in video game archaeology by, say, the beginning of 2020. And, and so that's cool. There's a, there's a book that I submitted to uh, the publisher's Berghahn Books. Uh, the book is called Archaeogaming, An Introduction to Archaeology in and of Video Games, and that will be coming out at the end of 2017. Uh, my team and I are currently writing on the Atari burial ground and that excavation, and so we can look for that. There's an Archaeogaming book coming out uh, from the University of Leiden. I've got a chapter in there about video games as archaeological sites. And then as far as, as, as future projects go, um, and part of the doctoral thesis you know, that I'm working on, I'm, I'm doing five case studies of different kinds of games and doing archaeology in there. And so I haven't determined what those five games are going to be, but they're going to be you know, from separate genres. So one's going to be an MMO, one's going to be um, like a 4X game, you know, one's going to be a platformer, um, one might be a card game, um, you know, just to, to spread it around to show how all these games can be observed archaeologically. And then I'll, I'll keep going, keep plugging away at No Man's Sky is just kind of a thing. If I get writer's block or something, I'll turn that game on and go find another planet or another system and go walk around and see what's going on. Um, so that's, that's kind of what's on the horizon right now. But that's not to say that something shiny will pop up next month and that'll really grab my attention and I'll, I'll go and, and do something. We've, uh, we have a, a game jam, I think, coming up later in 2017, also at the University of Leeds, that's specific to archaeology. So that'll be pretty fun. I'm curious, how many people have a PhD in video game archaeology? None, um, but, it's, but, but we're coming. Um, I, I'm actually going to be maybe the third, probably the third or fourth person to get one. Um, oh, wow. We have, uh, yeah, and I've said, said these names earlier on the, on the podcast, but they're all at the University of York where you've got Tara Copplestone, and if you Google her, she's got an awesome blog on video game archaeology, and she, she, she's coming at it from a, make, a making perspective, you know, thinking about games archaeologically while wearing a developer hat. 
Um, and then you've got yeah. L. Megan Dennis, also at York, who's talking about ethics in video games and what it means to be an archaeologist playing a video game and, and looking at archaeological reception or, or how do developers and players see archaeology you know, through the lens of video games. And so she's at York and she'll... The, those two will be finishing up, I think, uh, a year ahead of me or two years ahead. Um, but hmm. uh, I'm coming. So, uh, but it's it's still you know it's an archaeology degree, um, and we're just looking at virtual spaces as other archaeologists might look at ancient Egypt or something. It's uh, you know for us it's the same thing. That's great. So, how can listeners find out more about you and your work? Yeah, um, for me personally, um, I I own and operate archaeogaming.com. And now that I've started my PhD, I'm writing there a whole lot more than I used to. Um, so, so posts are coming fast and furious right now. Um, so there's that. Uh, there's the Twitter, at Archaeogaming. And you know, it's A-R-C-H-A-E-O-G-A-M-I-N-G. And so those are the, the two main spaces for that. Um, also, if you're interested in what other folks are doing, um, the Value Project um, at the University of Leiden, uh, they have a super active video game archaeology community, and they they post newsletters and do all kinds of wonderful things on their website. And they do a lot of playthroughs or let's play, you know, stuff. They did a let's play for Far Cry Primal, for example, and that was really fun to watch. Um, so yeah, give those guys a a good look also. Um, but the Archaeogaming Twitter and Archaeogaming.com is you know typically a good place to start, and then you can kind of branch out from there. It's been a little while since I recorded this interview with Andrew, so I asked him for a little bit of an update. Since the interview, Andrew has wrapped up his investigation of No Man's Sky, and he'll be presenting his findings in September. And that work is also contributing towards his thesis for his doctorate. Andrew had some really fascinating perspectives His work inspires me to wonder about the possibilities in other areas. What is the next academic or scientific field that can be applied to video games? What will we learn when more professions start taking games seriously? That wraps up the first episode of Plus 7 Intelligence. Luckily, you don't have to wait for more episodes. If you head on over to Apple Podcasts or your podcast source of choice, you will find multiple day one episodes for you to enjoy. Be sure to subscribe to the show to get weekly intelligence boosts. You can find the show on Twitter and Facebook. Your one-stop shop for all this info and the show notes with links to the topics discussed in the episode is plus7intelligence.com. Be sure to join me in the next episode as I talk to Paul Darvasi, who uses video games as inspiration in his classroom and as a tool for world peace. Yes, you heard me right. But you'll have to listen to the episode to get the full story. The Podglomerate. A Sonic Universe. Will everyone in the cardiac surgical department please raise your hands? Thank you. You're all fired. Based on an inspiring true story. Any department who places billing above care, you will be terminated. One doctor will break every rule. Just tell me what you need, what your patients need. To inspire a revolution. Let's get into some trouble. Let's be doctors again. From the network that brings you This Is Us, New Amsterdam. 
tonight on NBC.